0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Trump lied about science. That's the headline on the editorial Holden Thorpe published in Science Magazine last week. And the words beneath it were just as pointed. He wrote this. When President Donald Trump began talking to the public about COVID-19 in February and March, scientists were stunned at his seeming lack of understanding of the threat. We assume that he either refused to listen to the White House briefings that must have been occurring, or that he was being deliberately sheltered from information to create plausible deniability for federal inaction. Now, because famed Washington Post journalist Bob Woodward recorded him, we can hear Trump's own voice saying that he understood precisely that severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2 was deadly and spread through the air. As he was playing down the virus to the public, Trump was not confused or inadequately briefed. He flat out lied repeatedly about science to the American people. These lies demoralized the scientific community and cost countless lives in the United States. And that is just the beginning of this editorial. And joining me today to talk about it is Holden Thorpe. He's the editor-in-chief of science, and he is also the former provost at Washington University. So, Holden, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Sarah. It's great to be here.
0: So this is such a blistering attack. What made you decide to take on the president so directly in a scientific journal?
1: Well, we have been uh, writing about this, I have been writing about this uh, really ever since March, and I've written a lot of tough pieces about uh, the administration's take on this. Um, Starting with, uh, in March when Trump tweeted that COVID was just the flu and uh, he was saying, his folks were saying it was contained. Uh, We wrote a piece, I wrote a piece called Do Us a Favor That started began the process of of us calling him out uh, in the journal, and the reason we're doing that is because we're a voice for science and scientists, and we think I think and the whole uh, magazine when we're writing, you know, we're thinking about what does the scientific community want to hear from us, and the North Star for me uh, is the scientist who is working in the lab all day to try to come up with a way to get us to the other side of this pandemic. Either she's working on a vaccine or she's working on an antibody or she's doing something to describe uh, the way the virus behaves and she's maybe isolating herself from uh, her family so that they don't get sick or she's got school-aged children and she's trying to deal with that at the same time. Mm -hmm. And she comes home and turns on the TV, and and here's the president of the United States invalidating all the work that she's done and not showing any gratitude. Mm -hmm. So those are the people that that we're speaking for. And I think for them in this particular case, to hear the president's own voice uh, admitting that he has been lying about the severity of the virus and not showing any gratitude or appreciation for the work that was being done, I think was just psychically devastating. And we felt like we just couldn't let that go in terms of our mission of speaking for science and scientists.
0: Mm-hmm. So these words to Woodward, you wrote that, quote, these may be the most shameful moment." in the history of U.S. science policy. What do you think about his assertion that he was trying to keep people from panicking? Isn't that a worthy goal, Um, you know, as we're facing just the terror of that this thing could destroy all of us?
1: Well, I think that's a great underestimation of the ability of the American people to process information and come together and do the right things. And whenever America has faced crises in the past and other countries the great leaders that we celebrate in history are people who found a way to level with folks and give them hope at the same time. And there was an easy way to do that because you could explain what a challenge this was gonna be, but also say that our scientists were on top of this. And in fact, our scientists have been on top of this. We are well on our way towards a vaccine Uh, we've got a good handle on how the virus spreads and what the public health measures are that we could take. And there was a hopeful message that could have easily been tied to um, straight talk about the challenge that we are facing. And if you look back at American history, at uh, Jack Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis, or uh, FDR, or you look at world history, you see Winston Churchill, these are all people who, were able to level with uh, the public mm-hmm. about the challenge that, that was being faced and provide a hopeful path forward at the same time.
0: So he could have done this without the proverbial cry of fire in the movie theater. There's there's a way he could have conveyed this. And maybe the problem is he's not somebody who really loves giving credit to other people. He he maybe wouldn't want to make it about the scientists are going to be here to save the day. Is that part of the problem?
1: Uh, well, now, now you're getting into the political part and his psychology. But yes, I think that does uh, that is consistent with the fact that nowhere along the, these uh, this path have any of the people who are actually the ones doing all the work to get us where we're going to go nowhere have those people been thanked mm-hmm. by the president or his team. And those are the folks, as I said that we're writing for, and there's plenty of your listeners in this category, so thank you to them. Uh, those are the people who really deserve the credit uh, to, for uh, getting us on the way getting to the other side of this
0: so you're writing for these scientists and you felt like this was a message they really needed to hear as, as they work so hard on this problem I'm wondering how how it was received science scientists obviously aren't a monolith um, no profession is did you get pushback from scientists who are maybe more conservative
1: yeah I mean over the last six months as I've been writing these pieces there are uh, there's a consistent group of people who who email me or Uh, make comments on Twitter. But no, we've gotten nothing but encouragement. And that's even from uh, a lot of our corporate clients who are are advertisers in the magazine. Um, We've gotten a lot of support. And of course, um, like a lot of things in journalism, we've gotten a lot of attention uh, online. And that's all been, you know, really good for us.
0: So you haven't lost subscribers
1: over this? Oh, maybe one or two here or there, but uh, no, no our, our, uh, I'm sorry.
0: No massive subscribers. There hasn't been, you know, a pile of cancel my subscriptions headed your
1: way. No, and most of our readers um, access science through institutional licenses that the universities have. And uh, what we provide to the universities is research, commentary, and news. And there's a huge amount of appreciation for that, as we've gone through COVID, and uh, our our page views and all of that are uh, at all at record levels. And M- March w- was the biggest month in the history of. Science Magazine and (laughs) our website, but we've continued to sustain that as we've gone through this.
0: So this editorial you wrote in March, I I do want to chat a little bit about this one, too, because this is also incredibly pointed at the president. And part of what you're talking about there um, are the deep cuts that his budgets have made to science. You say um, it's happened over the past four years. There have been cuts to funding for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the NIH. You write, with this administration's disregard for science of the environmental Protection. Agency and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Science Administration and the stalled naming of a director for the Office of Science and Technology Policy, all to support political goals. The nation has had nearly four years of harming and ignoring science. Now the president suddenly needs science. Um, this idea of all these cuts and, and the impact that they've had, do you think this has severely weakened the Centers for Disease Control ability to respond
1: in this crisis? Well, thankfully, in basic science, the president has uh, proposed cuts in his budget, but Congress has put the funding back in. And so um, support for things like the NIH and the NSF has actually had modest increases, although mm-hmm. the, those are not there because the president wanted those. He, he had deep cuts in his budgets. Mm-hmm. On the public health side, uh, you know, as I think a lot of people have written about, there have been a lot of cuts and as we're seeing with the cdc really just a uh, removal of their influence uh and you know deep uh political uh, tampering mm-hmm. with scientific information and that is that is of deep concern it's certainly hurting us in this whole Uh, process in terms of managing this on the public health side.
0: I'm curious uh, what a departure this is or isn't as far as science, uh, the the magazine goes. Um, Are these editorials you've been running the type of thing your predecessors would have done? Or is this fairly unusual that you're taking on the politics
1: so directly? Uh, Well, it's been a little more direct than it has been in the past, but certainly I'm not the first uh, editor-in-chief to take issue with some things that the administration has been doing Uh, on climate change. We've been very strong anytime the administration uh, that was in place at the time has done anything to hurt uh, environmental protection or to deny climate change. And so many of my predecessors have been outspoken about that. And I had one uh, predecessor who's probably the most beloved uh, science uh, editor-in-chief, and that's Don Kennedy who uh, had been the president of Stanford before he got the, this job. And he was very outspoken about the Bush administration. Mm. Science is a three-part um, magazine. We have world-class, highly influential research articles that are just like any um, research journal. We have a news section that employs some of the very best, we think the very best news, science news writers uh, in the world. Uh, that report on these kinds of topics. And then we have a commentary section, and that is the voice of lots of different scientists speaking out about science, but I have the privilege of getting to be one of those now almost every week. Mm -hmm. And um, there's certainly never been a time when science was in the news broadly to the extent that it is now.
0: Would you like to see more scientists do what you're doing um, to call these things out directly and and very loudly?
1: Yeah, I think, unfortunately, there are a lot of scientists who don't feel like they have the opportunity to say everything that they want to say. I mean, I'm very lucky because I work for the CEO of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, who's a, a scientist, and for the board of the AAAS, who are all Uh, very prominent and practicing scientists. So Mm -hmm. they uh, are very supportive of the uh, things that I've been saying. Uh, A lot of scientists, you know, many of them work in the federal government and they're kind of walking on eggshells, trying to make sure that they are truthful with people, but uh, you know, they're limited in what they can say. And many scientists at universities uh, really don't want to get into the arena Uh, quite to this extent. And so I feel like I've been given an opportunity to speak for a lot of those folks, and I'm happy to do it. But I also believe that uh, science needs to recognize the fact that, you know, over the last 40 years or so, as we've seen environmental regulations uh, degraded, and as we've seen uh, changes in the way people teach science, that uh, it's not Uh, consistent with what we know about the world and now with the dismantling of our public health infrastructure that, you know, we can't take this position that, oh, science is not political and we can just do our work and look at our spreadsheets and put our data in the journals and let the rest of the world figure out how to process this for us. Uh, That's what's gotten us into this situation and uh, we really need to recognize that we operate in a political environment, we're funded by the federal government, and um, many of us, many of our scientists work for the federal government, uh, or are funded by them, and we are, by definition, part of the political environment of the country.
0: We're talking today to Holden Thorpe. He's the editor-in-chief of Science Magazine. He's also the former provost of Washington University. And we do want to invite you to join the conversation. Do you think more scientists should wade into the political fray? Why or why not? Uh, You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air, or you can email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. We'd be especially interested in hearing from scientists. What's your take on this? We do need to take a quick break. But we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. And now back to our conversation, we're talking today to Holden Thorpe. He's the editor-in-chief of Science Magazine. He's also the former provost at Washington University. And he has been writing some blistering attacks on President Trump lately, and particularly Trump's handling of science. And Holden, I did want to ask you, you're you're encouraging other scientists to speak out on issues when they can. Do you worry that a potential side effect could become that science becomes even more politicized in the way masks? They should be this maybe neutral thing that we're all just. doing to help the common good. Instead, it's become a Republican or Democrat issue. Are you worried that could happen to science as a whole?
1: Well, I think that's already happened to science as a whole. Mm. And so I think certainly that was the argument uh, for why scientists should stay out of the fray more. But I think unfortunately now it has become politicized uh, in such a way that a lot of folks uh, unfortunately view science as being part of the sort of group of experts that um, are are viewed with disdain by a lot of people on the right. So unfortunately, I think that's already happened. Mm. And so (laughs) there's really no point in in pretending like we're trying to preserve anything. I mean, unless anybody has a great scheme for bringing it back together, (laughs) which which I (laughs) think we've spent 40 years seeing it drift apart, yeah. it's kind of hard for me to see how it's going to come back together anytime soon.
0: It's interesting hearing you say that. It makes me think of my own profession, journalism, which which in many ways, it's become the same thing. It's become so politicized that, that a lot of people just think we're fake news. Um, and so many newspapers have inveighed against President Trump in their editorial pages. It doesn't seem to do anything to change his support. What do you think you can help change by, by writing these editorials when so many editorials have already been written?
1: Yeah, well, we don't, I don't, as I said, I don't really think of myself as someone who's writing an editorial that is going to change a lot of minds. What I'm trying to do is provide kind of a release for a lot of folks in science who are feeling attacked and and want someone to speak up for them. Mm -hmm. So that's really my objective. I don't think that uh, little old science magazine with our um you know what we think is a lot and it's a lot for a science journal you know a million people a day or something like that looking at our website yeah that's not Um, bad that's not bad we'll we're we're happy to have it and we appreciate all the traffic but that's not uh something when when ben shapiro is getting 50 million people to look at one of his facebook posts it's kind of hard to see how our editorials are going to move the meter
0: But yet you're there to sort of provide that exhortation um, to the people who maybe need that encouragement there working in the lab.
1: Yeah, we want to encourage those people to to keep going and to feel like there's somebody here speaking for them. And certainly we get a lot of great positive feedback that we're doing that. And that's our philosophy with the whole publication. Our news, uh, when we decide what we're going to cover in our news section, we think about what... um, you know, scientists are going to want to read about. Occasionally, especially during COVID, we've had some news stories that have crossed over into uh, the mainstream media. But uh, for the most part, you know, we're a journal and a magazine that's for scientists. And that's what we're, that's what we're trying to do. So Mm -hmm. I don't think that my editorials are really going to uh, change anybody's mind, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, they're there to, to help bring our community together.
0: I want to go to the phone lines. Harry is calling from University City. Um, Harry, hi, you're on St. Louis on the Air.
1: Hello. Um, I'd like for your guest to comment, maybe maybe along the lines, is how can students, um, when they're in graduate school, for example, be prepared to step up and to advocate for, for scientists in the in the public arena? I was in graduate school in the the focus of my training was just to be an objective scientist, so to speak, and not, and not uh, tread into the political arena. So, how, how would your guest um, suggest facilitating how, how potential, how future scientists, you know, in terms of their educational preparation, be prepared for this?
0: Harry, thank you for that question. Holden, I, I think that's a great question.
1: Yeah, it is. And thanks, Harry. And I, uh, you're bringing up a lot of different things. One is whether graduate school, the way we do it in science, is is adequate. I think most people would say it's not. It tends to focus a lot on the research productivity of the graduate students and not a lot on a lot of these other important issues. So I think there, a lot of reform needs to happen both by the universities and the funding agencies about making sure that we provide a more holistic education to graduate students while still balancing uh, the, the need for them to serve the country and uh, science itself by generating novel research. Uh, I think another thing is to try to make it more interesting and exciting and available for scientists who want to, for example, work in science policy to feel like there's a pathway for that and for them to feel supported by their, um, by their mentors and by science in general. At the AAAS, we have a very well-known and successful uh, program called the Science and Technology Policy Fellows, which is where PhDs either directly out of graduate school or more often after they've been doing some things in the, in the world uh, come through a program that allows them to interact with uh, the federal government and various parts of it. And I've had two graduate students of mine who went through the program and they're both, uh, in DC, uh, doing a lot of this stuff now. So I think we need to shine a brighter light on that and make it more prestigious and exciting for young people to participate in, uh, these kinds of careers. And, um, you know, it's going to take a lot of effort by the universities and the faculty, to uh, show appreciation for the students who want to do that.
0: Holden, do you have the sense this is on the radar of, of people who who have power in academia, that maybe there's some changes um, that should be made to how we train young scientists?
1: I think it's tough because the <clears throat> most of the metrics that drive academic behavior are ones that keep track of how many papers are published or how many grand mm-hmm. dollars you get and things like that. And so there's always this sort of treadmill that everybody's on trying to drive those things and uh, figuring out how the universities can put less emphasis on that and more emphasis on impact is pretty hard because there's a lot of gravitational pull towards these big metrics. And I think that's part of what Harry was just getting at with his question.
0: Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And Harry, I want to thank you for that call. We also heard from Jordan um, in St. Louis. He's a computer scientist, and he didn't want to make his comment on air, but was hoping we'd share it. Um, He says, Holden, that you have a good role in being able to discuss these things, but scientists shouldn't take it as an obligation to speak out on political matters. For the most part, Jordan says he thinks they need to be neutral. And he says scientists with a journalist communication background are maybe more equipped to speak out than others. Do you hear that, that a lot, that scientists should, should remain neutral?
1: Uh, yeah, well, uh, definitely I hear that a lot. And I certainly don't <clears throat> want to imply that everyone should participate in this sort of thing if they don't feel comfortable doing so. Uh, but I, at the same time, I think that we need to partner with other people who can provide voice to these issues uh, in a way that we haven't done in the past. Um, and, and so, you know, there's going to be some folks who feel comfortable doing that and some folks who, uh, would rather stay in the lab and focus on their, uh, on their studies and their research. And, um, you know, we want everybody who feels comfortable engaging to, to engage.
0: I am going to go back to the phone lines. Rob is calling from St. Louis. Um, Rob, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air.
1: I'm fine, Thank you for taking my call, and I just want to tell you that uh, thank you for that editorial and just uh, I don't know what else we can do. We're in strange times. I think you'll agree. But the one comment I wanted to have is uh, I noticed how people are parsing uh, from the woodwards uh, from the Woodward interview the statement that his motivation for this lie was. Uh, to uh, keep people from panicking and talking about Kennedy and that sort of thing. Why would you think that that is something other than the truth? Um, I, I don't think we know why he did what he did. And you can speculate about whether he was protecting the stock market or whatever he was doing. But anything that comes out of his mouth, he's the most mendacious, pathological liar I've ever seen in my life. Why believe anything he says? And uh, that's my
0: comment. Well, Rob, thank you so much for that. Um, I, I'm sure there are many people out there who feel that same way about our president. I guess Rob is saying, why give this guy the benefit of the doubt? Holden, was that part of your thinking in, in, as you came out and, and called, this, um, called this out the way you did?
1: Yeah, well, I think as the way this played out, I mean, when, when I started speaking out and a lot of other people in March, we were told, Oh, you're taking hope away from people, or uh, you're just being so negative, and um, <clears throat> you, or you know, you're just inventing this. And I think what the Woodward comments show is that none of that was true. And mm-hmm. so a lot of these talking points that were given to the allies of the president uh, were completely manufactured. And so it's more about those things being. Um, being fabricated than anything else. Mm-hmm.
0: Holden, I want to take a little bit of a step back here. It's been so interesting to talk to you today and to just get your perspective on this. And I know you're now based in Washington, D.C. You still have these deep St. Louis ties from your time at Washington University. And and to me, I guess the pivot from academia to being the editor-in-chief of this prestigious journal, it, it seems somewhat unusual. Is it? Am I wrong in thinking that it's 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 unusual to go from being a provost to being an editor-in-chief?
1: Uh, well, science uh, has always had the tradition uh, to have someone who has been a practicing scientist or hmm. administrator or both become the editor-in-chief. I think that gives us a strong tie to the academic scientists that we publish and that we represent. And so my predecessors, almost all of them, uh, have been uh, highly successful scientists, and um, many of them also administrators. My predecessors include the former head of the USGS, uh, someone who was a very important officer at the NIH, and as I said earlier, Don Kennedy, who had been the president of Stanford. So Mm -hmm. it's a pretty, it's a wonderful thing for me to be able to get to do, as, as one of your callers just said. It's a very special position and one-of-a-kind really in American science. And so I'm very lucky uh, that this was the next step on my journey. Uh, and it's it's got a lot in common with what my predecessors have done and with the, the philosophy of the AAAS that science should be a, a journal that is still very connected to The academic communities that we serve.
0: Now, I know you yourself, uh, you were a chemist. Were you ever torn, uh, tempted by journalism? You seem like a really good writer and you have a knack for this editor-in-chief thing.
1: Uh, Well, you know, as a university administrator, of course, I spent a lot of time talking to journalists and um, UNC where I was before I came to wash U, as a pretty famous journalism school mm. so I learned a little bit about journalism along the way, but I've learned even more from my from my news colleagues and the editors that I work with in the, our commentary section
0: But did chemistry was really your first love I don't I don't hear you saying yeah, I was really tempted by the idea of, <laughs> of doing this that, that wasn't originally your goal.
1: Oh, no. I, I uh, loved chemistry at the beginning. And that was my goal to be a chemistry professor. And I was very fortunate that I got the opportunity to do that.
0: Hmm. Well, I got to ask you, since I know you still pay attention to a lot of things happening there at WashU. how do you think WashU is handling the return to campus this fall, having students back on class and in very distant ways um, and to do in-person learning?
1: I think so far, so good. I mean, Chancellor Martin did a smart thing by waiting to start the semester a little while so that he could see what was working at and not working at some (laughs) of the other schools around the country. I think their testing program has been excellent. I know a lot about that because my daughter is a WashU undergraduate. So we hear from her whenever she gets another negative test back. Um, And I think uh, I've only seen the photographs, but it seems like what they have done uh, to secure the campus has been uh effective and you know i think so far so good uh and hats off to them for uh making some what i'm sure were some big investments of of time and money into making this all work and it's a day at a time i'm sure if they were on they would say yeah our numbers are okay today but we got to make sure they're okay tomorrow but i think they're being vigilant and uh having talked to a lot of their peers around the country that have had more trouble uh, I think a lot of great planning has gone into uh, the work that Andrew and his colleagues have been doing at WashU.
0: Hmm, that's great to hear. And obviously, with your daughter there, you're you're not just putting your money where your mouth is. You're putting a, a very valuable thing there uh, in their hands. So that's great you have that trust there. Um, do you have any sense of how St. Louis University is doing in comparison?
1: Uh, <clears throat> I haven't looked uh, specifically, but... Um, my understanding is that they're open as well and figuring out a way to get through this also.
0: Yeah, there's there's a lot of that right now, figuring out a way to get through this. Well, I'm hoping, I know you've had some, some words here that it, it feels like a prophet crying in the wilderness a bit, but I'm hoping maybe you can leave us with a little bit of hope. This pandemic has been very hard on this country. A lot of people just, just feeling sad about the state of things here. Do you have hope that we're going to get past this?
1: Oh, yeah, I think uh, and that's part of why I get so uh, wound up when the president is not uh, showing his gratitude uh, and giving credit to the people who've been doing everything. The healthcare care workers uh, who have been working in the ICUs and getting the death rate down and the scientists who have been at the bench and their computer screens figuring all this out have done a magnificent job. Uh, I think everything is proceeding, you know, again, I'm not a, I'm an inorganic chemist, not an epidemiologist, but I talk to a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And I think most of them are uh, very sober about the situation we're in, but I haven't had a single one of them tell me that they didn't think we were going to get through this. And I think the uh, work that biomedicine has done on vaccines and antibodies and all of that is, is just shaping up very well. I've never seen science uh, move this quickly hmm. on a problem uh, that was this important. So I'm proud uh, to be, you know, we th- I think of myself as the stage manager of the play. I'm proud to be the stage manager of the uh, great scientific play that's going on right now.
0: Yeah, I mean it is it is a deeply depressing time in many ways, and yet when you look at how close we are um, to some, you know, and the major breakthroughs that have been had on something that we didn't even know about a year ago, um, maybe science should take a bow on this one.
1: Uh, for sure, they should. It's stunning what has uh, happened, and uh, still a lot to go. But uh, like I said, I've never seen anything make this much progress this quickly, and I'm proud to be part of it.
0: Well, those are some hopeful words to leave us with. So, Holden Thorpe, I want to thank you so much for that, and and thank you for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Sarah. Great talking to you.
0: Podcast episodes of St. Louis on the Air are available at stlpublicradio.org, or you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, the Stitcher Podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske.